Welcome to the Cumberland River Compact's River Talks podcast. In each episode of River Talks, we explore a new topic related to the health, enjoyment, and protection of the Cumberland River Basin's water, people, and special places. We sit down with experts, artists, researchers, professionals, and more to share their knowledge and experiences. I'm Katherine Price, your River Talks host. Be sure to subscribe to River Talks to be notified of every new episode. And if you have a moment, please rate and review our podcast. Nature's stories are plentiful. From the drama when predator meets prey to the beauty of spring's first flower, nature always has something to say. But the story of nature is more than just science. It's the lattice work of connections between people and nature. Through storytelling, we can all begin to unravel and share these important stories. Brooke Jarvis is a writer who tells the complicated stories of nature's unknowns. She is a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine and the California Sunday Magazine. Her work has also been featured in The New Yorker, Wired, GQ, Harper's, and more. In this River Talk, Brooke joins me in conversation about how we can tell the story of nature's wonder, amazingness, complexity, and beauty, while also sharing the reality of biodiversity decline and environmental degradation around the world. So thank you, Brooke, for for joining me today on the River Talks podcast. I'm really looking forward to having this conversation with you. And I know that now you are out on the West Coast, um, but you have roots here in Tennessee. Could you introduce yourself a little bit and your roots uh, here in Tennessee? So I grew up in Maryville, right next to the Smoky Mountains. Lived there, you know, from birth to when I left for college at 18 and spent a lot of time in the Smokies and also in Middle Tennessee. I was in the Scouts and we went on some great camping and backpacking trips in Middle Tennessee as well. So now I live in Seattle and I, when I get out to the mountains, which is quite a lot, especially lately with the pandemic, I'm headed into the Cascades, but the the mountains of East Tennessee are definitely my home country. I love very much. It's a great place. I didn't grow up in Tennessee, but definitely when you leave it and you come back, you notice how unique our land and water is. So it's, and it's exciting to have other places to explore as well. And so, um, you know, you're a writer and you've written on a variety of topics, everything from biodiversity to climate activism, insects, climate impacts, and, and, and so much more. And so I was curious, what draws you into the topics that you write on? I'm in a lucky position to be able to really choose, you know, what I, what I write about. I tend to, sometimes editors come to me with story ideas, but often I just follow what I'm interested in until it sort of coalesces for me as a story and then I pitch it. You know, I'm, so I'm always drawn to stories about conservation and nature um, because it's something that is extremely important to me personally and that I think many of us don't pay enough attention to. You know, we're surrounded by these enormous changes all of the time and many of us don't even realize that they're happening or that we're causing them or what they're going to mean in the long term. So uh, I, I love it when I can find ways to make that visible to people, especially through narrative or yeah, any, any way to help people connect with the world around them, which is kind of a goofy thing to say, but there's just so much that we miss. Um, and there's so many great stories within conservation and 
environmental issues, but they can be hard to tell because people expect them to go a certain way or they expect them to be universally depressing, which they often are. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so you've described your work as narratives on complicated issues. And you were kind of just talking about this idea of using narrative and using storytelling to get these issues and these conversations across to people. So why do you think that that type of narrative is so valuable in explaining these complicated environmental issues we're facing today? I mean, one reason is that there's just a lot that we as people are really bad at seeing. You know, we're not very good at perceiving or understanding really large numbers. We're not good at perceiving gradual change over time, even if it's not that gradual. And, you know, narratives are just a way for us to start to wrap our, our brains around what's happening and what it means, often through the people who are trying to solve, you know, kind of the mysteries of the natural world or who are trying to do something about all of these declines in biodiversity and issues like climate change. Yeah, and I, I really enjoyed that about your, your writing that there is that strong people component in addition to sort of traditional talking about nature or talking about the environment and kind of those intersections between nature and people are, are so valuable in telling those human stories. So when kind of looking at a story, how do you strike that balance between you know, telling that, that personal story of the person involved and communicating information about the science or nature or what the processes are that are going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's always tricky. But I think that being able to, to hook onto personal and human stories gives you space to convey that other information in a more, in a more interesting way than if somebody was just reading a scientific report or something. I have a friend who talks about finding story ideas in terms of there being a plot story and an ideas story, which is something that I come back to a lot, like the, the fact that most of the stories I work on need to operate on at least a couple of levels. You know, one, of, one is the things that are happening and the stakes of that, and the other is sort of the big picture, the big ideas, the big questions, and why they matter. So I usually wait until I feel like I have both of those parts figured out before I dive into something. Yeah, and it's sort of like you're learning about the big idea as you're, you're journeying through this story as well, which I think, you know, as thinking about how we communicate about science, that is so valuable to get the idea across again by using those, those people. And in, in a recent piece that you wrote, um, it was the book review of the Book of Eels, and um, you talked in there about how the German biologist Max Schultz uh, noted on his deathbed that he was leaving a world where, quote, all the important questions had been settled, all of them except the eel question, which I loved that that quote from him and integrating that in with your review of the book. And, you know, I think that it can be easy to think that we know everything about the natural world or somebody else knows everything about the natural world and it's all been figured out. And so how do those sort of unexpected workings and the, the strange things in our natural world inspire you to share those stories. Yeah, I love, uh, I love stories like that. I really loved working on that piece about eels and it captured a lot of attention. Somebody this week sent me a picture of a, a jacket they made that was <laughs> inspired by that article and the, the crazy mystery that is eels. You know, I think a lot of us are drawn to that. We live in the era of Google Earth. Um, you know, people tend to think like our technology is so advanced that we've just figured everything out about nature and biology, which is not at all the case. And there's 
you know, there's so much to be explored and so much that is happening without our knowledge. I'm working on a, another project about insects right now. And, you know, the reality of the vast majority of insects is we don't know what they are. They, they haven't been discovered, much less studied. Or I did a piece for The New Yorker a few years ago about people who believe that the Tasmanian tiger, uh, which has been considered extinct since 1936, is actually still, you know, out there roaming the island. And that was an interesting question to get into. Like, what is it, what is it about that possibility or that mystery that people seem to need? Why are we drawn to the idea that there would be something that is unperceivable to us? but still out there. And in that case, you know, I think a lot of it had to do with the guilt of having driven it to extinction in the first place and this idea that you could get some kind of redo, mm. which is not what's going on in all cases. But I, you know, the, the world is crazy and fascinating and I love being able to explore that and to show that it's not, it's not all figured out. And how do you think some of those unknowns that are still out there encourage people to value and protect nature in a different way? When they know that it's not all figured out, how does that encourage somebody to maybe be more um, conscious of their impact on nature? Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, as simple as the old John Muir saying about when you tug on anything in nature, you find it connected to everything else. You know, sort of the precautionary principle of if you don't understand how things operate and how things are connected, then the last thing you should be doing is snipping away at the fabric because you don't know in what ways it's going to unravel. But it's, you know, in that eel story, one of the things what, you know, that the mystery of the eel has been meaningful to human civilization and human meaning making as well as the, the eel itself. Um, and so when we are losing that aspect of nature, in this case, driving the European eel to extinction, we're also losing all of that meaning that it has held for us as we figure out who we are in the world and how the world works. Yeah, I think that idea that nature is not simply the scientific things that are going on, but the cultural implications of those natural things is, is so valuable, again, for kind of that protection. And this, the eel, um, you know, book review, you got, it seems like you got a lot of kind of good response from that. And so how did that come up as something to respond about? I know you were uh, doing it as a review of the book. Was that the, a book that you had seen or were you kind of curious about eels to begin with? How did that one come about? Uh, in that case, actually, my editor at the New Yorker just emailed me. Um, and it was one of the best uh, assignment emails I've ever gotten because I think it was, it was like five words long. It just said, you know, dear Brooke, what about the eel? <laughs> and, and then is the eel of interest? Uh, but I was like, yeah, what about the eel? Yeah. <laughs> Just with those few words, it's like, okay, I'm going out there and I'm going to learn about the eels. You know, when we had originally connected, the eel story was what really kind of got us because here in, in the Cumberland River Basin, we do have some freshwater eels and they're kind of connected to that sea and land and freshwater and saltwater um, migration that, that's talked about in the book and you talk about in your review. And it's something that is so unknown. Like, how does this all work? Where do they come from? Where do they go? And I've um, been lucky enough to see some freshwater eels at a aquatic oh, cool. research center and they're just, they're just so bizarre looking. And yeah, you look at them and wonder, well, where did you come from? And I think they start as like, like 
you know, almost like the size of a hair or something, uh, you know, one single strand of hair, they're so tiny before they make this massive migration. They're just very fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they've been confusing and confounding natural scientists for thousands of years who couldn't figure out where they come from or why they didn't have sex organs. And then, you know, it's also a story of loss and defaunation. After that article came out, I started getting emails from people you know, it focused on the European eel, but the American eel is very similar and goes comes from the same breeding grounds, which is also interesting because we don't really know how the eels know where they're headed and how they separate for their different migrations. But anyway, I was hearing from people who were involved in the eel fishery when it was much, much larger, like mid-century, and one person described the size of it as it being like a freight train coming down the center of the Chesapeake and just these, you know, unbelievable, uncountable numbers of eels, which is no longer in any way our reality. And it's amazing how quickly and deeply things can change. Yeah, and, and with that example, you know, there's this idea that people, we have scientific knowledge of things, but people have knowledge of the world that they knew as they were growing up. And so how do you think that using, and, and maybe you have other examples of stories where we've actually really been learning about the natural world from stories like that, from people who have seen the natural world maybe before these types of destruction? Yeah, so there's the whole study of what's known as shifting baseline syndrome, where sort of your, your expectation of what normal looks like changes over time. And you may, you know, the world may have experienced a dramatic decline. Uh, a famous example of this is um, fish in, in the Florida Keys. There was somebody who looked at photos of people who were there on vacation, proudly holding up their catch. And in the 50s, they were, actually, I think the study started maybe in the 20s. These enormous, you know, eight foot long fish hanging from the board. And then by the 50s, they were two or three feet long. And in the 90s, you have people with these little fish. Uh, and nobody realizes that they're getting smaller. Nobody realizes that this overfishing is happening. Uh, the smiles on people's faces are just as big when the fish are much, much smaller. And it's so easy for us to not realize that things like that are happening. I did a story a few years ago on the question of insect decline, which has been sort of a mystery for a long time among entomologists. It's something that people have, you know, there's been a lot of anecdotal evidence that there are just fewer insects that, than there used to be, people who remember this great abundance that they no longer see. And the example that's often given there is the number of smashed insects that you see on the windshield of your car. It's called the windshield phenomenon when you realize like, wow, this, and, and often people realize it suddenly because they've never noticed and then something makes them notice and it's, it's a holy shit moment that there's less, the world is less rich than it used to be. But then, you know, it's science's role to step in and say, well, people are really bad at noticing change. Is this really happening? Is this all in our heads? And so now there's a ongoing sort of quest to, to find out what actually is happening with insect decline and to what degree it's happening and where and what's causing it. Yeah, that was a great piece. And I, when I heard that idea of the insects on the windshield, I, I had that same thing like, oh yeah, I do remember driving a lot and we'd always have to be cleaning the windshield. And like, I can't remember the last time I had to clean my windshield that much from insects. And so I think, you know, it, some things are happening so quickly yet so slowly in our human perspective that we don't always notice them and, and kind of react to them in that way. 
And in, in another piece that you recently wrote about a youth climate activist up, up in Washington, where you are, you talked about this term eco-anxiety and this chronic fear of environmental doom. And I think that this is especially prevalent in, in youth that are growing up in a world that they've always kind of known what, what climate change is. And it's always been something that's been on the top of their mind. And so how in, in writing and telling stories, do you balance sort of a positive message about the natural world, its beauty, its biodiversity, with sometimes this more realistic but less positive note about what's actually happening? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that can be tricky to do, but also at the same time, you know, th th those are the two main things that are happening in the natural world. They're, it's like the two sides of the coin. One is the, the wonder and the amazingness and the complexity. And if you you know, drill down on any species and how it interacts with its ecosystem and how the details of how nature actually works is fascinating always. So that like, but that always coexists with the fact that, you know, wildlife biodiversity is in dramatic decline all over the world. A statistic that has always blown my mind is that if you think about animal life, uh, terrestrial animal life in terms of biomass, just in terms of what things weigh, then only 4% of what is remaining is wildlife and 96% is humans and our livestock. Wow. Uh, it's just stupefying. And so there's, there's no part of nature that is not being affected by climate change, by pollution, by habitat loss. So two, two sides of the same coin, as I was saying, the stories are, are so intertwined. I do think it's important to be talking about the psychological impacts that the degradation of nature has on people. And there's more and more attention being paid to that all the time by, by researchers and social scientists, because it's, you know, we act like it wouldn't affect us, but of course it's going to affect us. We evolved to be within a certain healthy, natural system. And when that system begins to decline or even when we're separated from it that has effects on how we live and of course being you know being anybody today but especially being a kid who is growing up reading about oh in 2050 this will be happening and it's really scary stuff like the acidification of the oceans that's just a really heavy thing to to grow up with and wonder what your future is going to be like and do you find that people react or respond to your writing the, the aspects that are more about the joy and just simple workings of nature or the really truth, you know, seeking aspects of what's going on? It's a good question. I think both. Um, I think people have both a hunger for wonder and a, a really deep-seated worry. Yeah, certainly. And I think that balance of that that worry when you understand those inner workings of nature, I think that that what's happening becomes even more important to you. It's not something far off. It's something that you sort of really feel deep within you. And so I think, like you were saying, having that balance can really lead to the, the best impacts as, as people like us thinking about how we can encourage more people to think about the environment and think about their environmental impacts. Thanks to the supporters of the Cumberland River Compact who help bring our podcast to listeners. Your support of our work goes a long way. From neighborhoods to farms, we are working to address the root causes of water quality issues in positive and innovative ways. 
Consider a donation today to help support the future of water. More information is available at cumberlandrivercompact.org donate. I wanted to go back to the piece a little bit that you wrote about the youth climate activists in, in Seattle, because I thought that was a great piece and feature that you did. And I, I think that you interviewed her before kind of all of this pandemic started. And so I'd love to just hear a little bit more about um, spending a day with this young youth climate activist and learning from her about the work that she's doing. I did. Um, I started meeting with her, I think in February. To, to do a, pro a profile, you usually spend a fair amount of time with somebody over time her school was very close to my house and I would go meet her at the bakery by her school after school. And yeah, it's, you know, the, the world of youth climate activists is large and it's very intense. There's a lot of people who are, you know, they're, they're running these campaigns from their high schools. Uh, Jamie had a, a place in the drama department where the drama department stored its, its costumes, where she, that was like her at-school office. And, you know, other people I talked to, had had other little corners of their high schools that they had claimed in order to be sending emails and doing all of this organizing work all the time, which is, you know, not how I spent my high school years. Nope. <laughs> but it's a, it's a, you know, they really felt in a way that they had no other option. So the thing that I heard from a lot of people was, you know, we have this fear that we're not going to have a future. You know, they maybe want to do other things with their life, like Jamie would like to work in film but they are worried that none of that's going to be possible if they don't convince adults to do something about the environmental crises that we're facing. So it's a pretty, pretty intense way to be a kid. Yeah, certainly. And that, that's a great piece. And we'll, we'll link that for, for listeners that they haven't had a chance to read it because it's a really good in-depth profile. And, you know, you write a lot of these kind of long form profile pieces. And so like you were saying, you spend a lot of time with the people and in the places that you're, you're writing about. So I was wondering if you have any, you know, surprising stories or experiences that you've learned while you were writing or researching a story or heading out into, you know, farm fields and out into uh, different places with the people that you're writing about? Yeah, that's been a, a really cool and interesting part of this job is that you definitely find yourself in situations that you wouldn't otherwise. Like one time I went and spent Christmas uh, at this, you know, in a small village in the Amazon because I wanted to write about somebody who came from there. He has an interesting and complicated story. It's a community that has been really hit hard by the oil industry and pollution. And he had essentially been sent to Seattle as a 10-year-old because they happened to meet an exchange student and asked her to take him because they wanted him to get the kind of education that would allow him to be a, a spokesperson and sort of defender of their interests. And so when I met him, I and I found out he was going home for Christmas, I was like, can I come? <laughs> so you, you know, you end up having, being present for these intimate family moments and in all kinds of different lives and communities. And it's great. I mean, people are, are very, often very willing to share their stories when there's something that they care about. And yeah, it's really an honor to be able to be invited into all of these different worlds and see how other people live in the world and what their concerns are. Yeah, and for people who may be interested, whether young people or 
um, you know, people later in life that want to use their voice and their writing to explore the natural world and, and share about these stories, what is some advice that you would give them? That's a good question. One of the main tricks is learning to think, I mean, not tricks, but uh, learning to think in terms of stories. Yeah. Because it's not, you know, if you said, oh, I want to write an article about polar bears, that's what editors always say is, well, that's a topic, not a story. What's the story? Mm. And so trying to to look for who are the people who are changing things. I like that idea of it being less of the idea of polar bears, but more of the story, the people who maybe are working to protect the polar bear or research the polar bear or something like that. Um, right. Or what are the stakes? Mm-hmm. What is changing? What could What could be changed? you know, who are the people involved and what are their lives like and what are the moments that, you know, where, where things shift, what are the moments that, that matter? That's the traditional advice for thinking beyond, beyond a topic and finding a story. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of ways to write about nature and, you know, I, I do one version of that, but there are a million others. And when thinking about these stories, you know, there are people like you that write stories that that are at kind of large scales that have implications for a lot of people. But there's so much locally in people's own towns and communities that can be a story. So, you know, could you describe sort of the benefit of having people at a local level, whether they're just a high school student who has a blog that writes about Mm -hmm. stories that are local to really bringing some of these big stories to light? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's, I guess that's something that you start to realize once you start thinking in this way is that there's just so much richness and interesting stuff happening around you. You know, any kind of local ecosystem, there's even like, even if you live in a city, there are a ton of people who study urban ecology and that's a really fascinating and growing world. Um, You know, people that you could interview to learn that this, you know, this vacant lot that you've lived next to for years, like has a lot more going on than meets the eye or than most people realize. Yeah, it's it's basically a way of adding texture to the world. You just come to see that there's a lot more going on. It's kind of like if you if you learn your different types of trees uh, and then you take a walk in the woods, it's so different because it's not just an undifferentiated green understory. You're like, oh, this is that plant and this is that plant. I think it has a similar effect of making you see that there's a lot going on like immediately next to you that you might not have noticed before. Yeah, and also that people are experts in their own lived experience. And so if, if they're experiencing something, that writing and sharing that story is extremely valuable because nobody else is experiencing it, it's only really them. And so I think finding that voice and finding that story, even if it's your own story, can be really powerful in your own connection to, to nature and to the natural world. Absolutely. And, you know, the fact that you care about something is that's a big deal. Like help other people understand why you care about it. Hmm. And I think in today's world, there's so many ways to tell your story. You could be a, you could have a traditional blog, you could have a newsletter, you could be a TikTok star and be telling your story on something (laughs) like that. And that's a great way to continue to tell a story and, and, and to advocate for, for what you're experiencing. 
And mm -hmm. you mentioned earlier the uh, sweatshirt, the eel sweatshirt that you got, which I love. I think that's awesome. Um, what are some other common responses or feedback that you get from readers about your writing or have you been sent anything else crazy like that? <laughs> <laughs> well, in that case, it was um, somebody made it for a friend and then just sent me a picture of it. Uh, but I was I was very honored that like there was this group of friends that had talked so much about the Yule article that it became a like an inside joke and something that they <laughs> wanted to make this jacket for, yeah. um, which was cool. Yeah, I hear from a lot of people. Um, I would say most of the, you know, email I get is about people who want to sort of situate what they've read about through the lens of their own lives. Like they want to, they want to share their personal experience. You know, when I wrote about insect decline, I heard from so many people who had these stories of what insects were like during their childhood and what insects are like now. Um, you know, it clearly felt very, very personal to them. And I'd say that's the most common kind of feedback I get. Often it's all over the place, but I, I think that's a sign of how, sort of how we relate to the world mm -hmm. and, and why things like biodiversity matter to all of us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these stories are, you know, more and more important, I think, in today's world. And, you know, how can we as, as listeners to this podcast and as, as supporters of wanting to share about the natural world, how can we continue to support this type of kind of investigative journalism who uncover and tell these important stories? Well, it's definitely important to be subscribing to the kinds of media that you want to continue to exist in the world. There's obviously a crisis right now in journalism in terms of funding, and it's really worse for local news. And so much depends on local news. You know, it's not like if all we have left is the New York Times, which obviously I love, we're in trouble. We need places to be looking at local stories and, you know, keeping an eye on all of, all of the important things that are not national, but still really important. So definitely subscribing to local media and, you know, supporting it if it's nonprofit media is a big thing. And there, there's a lot of misinformation floating around it's very important to sort of be a careful news consumer and make sure that you trust the outlets you're sharing information from. You know, really look into it. Does it have bylines? Does what kind of, what is their coverage like? You know, is it an outlet overall that you have reason to trust? Unfortunately, that's, that's on each of us now. We have to be really careful and responsible news consumers. And are there other writers or people who have written books about nature that really inspire you that you would recommend we look at? Oh gosh, uh, I wouldn't even know where to start. Um, I, <laughs> lots of great, I'm just going to turn around and look at my shelf right now. The book Wild Ones by John Mualam is one of my favorite books about how we interact with animals and sort of how the role that they've played in, in our national conception of what America is. Uh, but also looking at endangered species and how that all works. Um, it's an excellent book. The Golden Spruce by John Valiant, The Song of the Dodo. Oh, that's a good um, one. Yeah, there's um, a huge world of excellent nature writing. Um, I just read a great book about whales by Rebecca Gibbs called Fathoms. Yeah, I, I could go on for a long time, so <laughs> I won't. Yeah, and we're lucky in, in Middle Tennessee here to have some fabulous nature writers. Uh, Margaret Rankle writes a weekly piece in the New York Times Opinion, and, and she writes often about 
nature about the connection to nature and locally in Nashville. So that I always recommend her writing for, for hmm. people as well who are new to, to thinking about nature writing. Do you have any upcoming projects that you can share about with us? I know you mentioned something about insects. Is there anything else that you're working on? That's the big long-term project right now. I'm also working on, you know, some shorter magazine pieces. One is about smell. Uh, I'm reading an interesting book about smell right now. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds fun. I like that. (laughs) And, you know, you've obviously traveled a lot of places um, around the world, you know, and have lived outside of Tennessee for a while now. And what do you think makes Tennessee and sort of the, the land and water in Tennessee so special? I mean, a big thing, you know, in East Tennessee is the level of biodiversity. Can't remember off the top of my head, but, you know, fascinating statistics about how there's maybe more species of tree in the Smokies than in all of Europe. And, you know, I know it's the most species dense place for salamanders. You know, anybody who wants to learn more about the biodiversity of, of East Tennessee or the Smokies, the all taxa biological survey there is super interesting. Yeah, I think Tennessee is a is a beautiful and remarkable place. Since moving away, I always tell, you know, I explain it to people in terms of the three parts of the state and how distinct they are from one another, including ecologically. Yeah, and I always think our biodiversity is interesting because it's a lot of things that people don't see. You know, it's not the charismatic megafauna like the polar bear and, you know, it's these small darter fish or salamanders or freshwater mussels that you know, if you don't, you know, you could easily walk by them like you were talking about earlier, not really knowing what they are, knowing how special they are. And so um, I've heard it described as our our freshwater biodiversity being sort of an underwater rainforest. And so it takes a little bit more effort, I think, to share the stories of the biodiversity because it's not something that we are maybe as inclined to attach to because it's not something we've kind of grown up thinking as being really cool biodiversity, but it's just as fun and just as important to protect and to understand. Yeah, and that actually reminds me of another book recommendation, which is The Forest Unseen by David Haskell, where he writes about a one square meter patch of old growth forest, I think in the Smokies, yeah. uh, and follows it for one year. That yes. was a great book. Yeah. Oh, and also um, it's, not, it's fiction, but uh, if anybody hasn't read the overstory yet, the author lives in Townsend and it's an incredible book. Yeah, I'm about um, 150 pages into that. So I will, I'm loving it so far. <laughs> Thank you again for, for joining us. This was a great conversation thinking about how we can really focus on the stories that we see in the, in the natural world and share those stories with, with people to promote environmental protection. Yeah, thanks so much for having me and thanks for the work that you do. Thank you to Brooke for joining us on the River Talks podcast. The wondrous biodiversity and unknowns of our region are a continued source of inspiration for us. The Cumberland River region is within one of the most biodiverse regions in the United States, and our basin's headwaters in the southern Appalachian Mountains are one of the most biodiverse temperate places on Earth. Almost 10,000 species are known to exist in the southern Appalachians, and more are discovered every year. We appreciate the work of writers and storytellers like Brooke, who bring these wonders to light, and we encourage you to tell your own story. Want to add your thoughts about this week's episode? Send us an email at rivertalks at cumberlandrivercompact.org 
or leave us a voice message at 615-933-8837. Until next time, I'm Katherine Price and hope you can join us for more River Talks.